Let's pray together. Our God and our Father, Your Word, O Lord, is upright, and all Your work is done in faithfulness. You love righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. For by the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of your mouth all of their host. You gather the waters of the sea together as a heap. You lay up the deep in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of you. For you spoke, and it was done. You commanded, and it stood fast. We pray this evening, O Lord, as your word is read and preached in this place, that it will not return to you void, but it might accomplish all of the things, O God, you purpose for it to do, that it will perform its work in the hearts of those of us who believe, that it will make us wise unto salvation, that it will enlighten the eyes of our heart to help us see through the passing pleasures of passing things, like Moses of old, O God, who when he became of age refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, but chose rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, because he looked to the reward. Help us to see him who is invisible and therefore gain a right estimation of the wealth and size of the riches of this world, O Lord, that our souls would not be sold cheaply like so many do, as Jesus says, what will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Um, Lord, help us. Give us wisdom, O Lord, and let us not trade our never-dying soul cheaply. What will a profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? O God, help us and grant us to put to death covetousness, which is idolatry, lest we follow Ahab's example. And we offer these prayers in Jesus' name, O Lord. Amen. This is the Word of God. Please take heed how you hear. Now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden, because it's near my house, and I will give you a better vineyard for it, or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbids that I should give you the inheritance of my father's. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away his face and would not eat no food. But Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, Why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and, he, and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money. Or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, Do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread, and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters to Ahab in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. 
And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then let him, then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, as it was written in the letters that she had sent to them. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He's dead. As soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth is not alive, but dead. And as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite, to take possession of it. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, dogs shall lick your own blood. Ahab said to Elijah, Have you found me, O my enemy? He answered, I have found you, because you have sold yourself to do what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you, I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat any one of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel his wife incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. And when Ahab heard these words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh, and fasted, and lay in sackcloth, and wept, and sorry, went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days I will bring the disaster upon his house. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls off, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, death is a problem for doctors, and covetousness is a problem for kings. No matter how much you have, you can always have more. And no matter how much you have, there's always something you don't have right now or can't have. And I learned that lesson when I was a physician. I was into high-fidelity music, you know, the hi-fi separates with the, the amp or the two amps biamping, and the, the various uh, separates, the CD player and the, 
the turntable and so forth. And the thing about getting into that is there's always something more you can have for your system. Even down to the wires that connect the various pieces together, you can spend hundreds of dollars on wires, and some men do, to, to reduce the interference and get that crisp sound stage and so forth and so on. And it's an endless line of covetousness. My piano teacher back in Northern Ireland, he's a jazz pianist, he was single, um, and so without a wife to spend all his money, he was able to spend it on himself. And so he had this rather small house and a piano upstairs, knocked all the walls down upstairs in the house, beams held the ceiling up, and he had these, this wonderful hi-fi system. His speakers, the pair of speakers, were 20,000 pounds, which is about $30,000 for these two speakers. Incredible. Um, and the sound off them was absolutely crystal clear. It was incredible. You'd think the band was right in the room. And that, even that small fry, um, Bowers and Wilkins sell speakers that are eighty to $100,000 a pair, and you can even go beyond that. It's just incredible. They, they paint the air with music is the tagline. Um, and so you just in this, you, you get your next system with your new wires. It sounds wonderful. Then you open up the Watt Hi-Fi magazine, and there's always something bigger and better. Just a little bit more, a little bit more here, a little bit more there, and there's an endless line of improvements. And it literally can be soul-destroying. And I thank God that I have left those things behind now, and my, my system actually sits in the basement of the staff house and is no longer even used, interestingly. But nonetheless, there you have it, covetousness. It's a problem for kings, and it's a problem for all men. What is covetousness? Essentially, covetousness is a sinful, willful, resentful, rebellious, rapacious, greedy disposition of the heart that will not content itself with what God has already given, but instead always wants more. In the midnight hour and in every other hour, the covetous heart cries, more, more, more. And it's the universal tendency of every human heart, envy, jealousy, covetousness, in the book Embracing Obscurity, the author, who is obscure, says there is within the human heart a tough, fibrous root of fallen life whose nature is to possess, always to possess. It covets things with a deep and a fierce passion. Thomas Brooks, the English Puritan, says envy. It tortures the affections. It vexes the mind. It inflames the blood. It corrupts the heart. It wastes the spirit, and so it becomes man's tormentor and man's executioner at once. Man's tormentor and man's um, executioner at once. And in our sermon this evening, we'll see how covetousness is one of the crowning defilements of Ahab's soul. I think it was Thomas Watson, the Puritan, who said Naboth had to have, sorry, Ahab had to have Naboth's vineyard, though he had to swim through a sea of blood to get it, first Naboth's and then his own. Covetousness, covetousness. Well, the first thing we see in our text this evening is the sure progress of sin, 
the sure progress of sin. Ahab is a living illustration of the progress of sin in the soul. Like cancer, it spreads, it consumes, it destroys. If you are not killing sin, as John Owen famously observed, it will be killing you. And Ahab's soul has been on a downward trajectory since we first met him. Way back, you remember, in 1 Kings 16 and verse 30, we're told, Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him, and as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. And you remember how he goes, he goes through um, from chapter 16, 17, 18, when he meets um, Elijah the prophet, he says, he calls Elijah the, tr- the troubler of Israel, and Elijah responds in verse 18, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, you and your father's house, because you've abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. And then in the last chapter that we left just before the end of my or the beginning of my vacation, in 1 Kings chapter 20, we see him fighting um, Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria. And you remember at the end of that chapter, the Lord gives him victory, but, Eli- uh, but Ahab doesn't press the victory home. And because he doesn't press the victory home, God judges him. And we, we leave him at the end of that chapter, vexed and sullen. Verse 42 Uh, Thus says the Lord, because you have let go out of your hand the man whom I had devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house vexed and sullen and came to uh, Samaria. Well, vexed and sullen, it's the same words used in this chapter too. We see Ahab sitting in an evening perhaps, on the veranda of his palace, looking out over the city, which he rules, and he sees Naboth's vineyard. And it's just a perfect plot of land. And the more he looks at Naboth's vineyard, the more he begins to desire it. Uh, he yearns for it. It begins to consume him. He's, he's just thinking of all the things, the vegetables he could grow there in that vineyard. He wouldn't have to be carted off from his vegetable garden and the back end of Samaria, when they got to his, his palace, they would be all limp and, and uh, putrid and sour. No, these would be fresh vegetables, glorious things. He could go out and relax in the evening, and it would just be a wonderful place to uh, shoot the breeze. And so he thinks, I, I, I'll be a reasonable man. I'll go down and speak to Naboth. And he goes down to Naboth, and he offers him a very fair deal. He says, listen, I would like to have your vineyard. And I want to make it a vegetable garden. It's near my house, and that would suit me well. And I will give you a better vineyard. It's a small vineyard. It's a nice vineyard. I want it, but I'll give you an even better vineyard. Not quite there somewhere else, but it'll be wonderful. If you don't want a better vineyard, I'll give you money, lots of money. It's a deal, a fair deal. And you'll be happy, and I'll be happy, and it'll be a win-win. And Naboth turns to Ahab and says, the Lord Yahweh forbid. Evidently, 
Naboth is a pious man, a godly man. He calls upon the name of Jehovah. And he says, forbid, God forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. For Naboth, this wasn't just a, a piece of land. It wasn't a real estate deal. It was a spiritual matter. This was a piece of land that God had given to him and before him to his father, before him to his grandfather and his great-grandfather, all the way back to the time when Joshua brought the people of Israel into the land of Israel and they possessed it. This had been their family's land from time immemorial. And back in those days, the portion of Israel in the promised land was literally a little slice of heaven on earth. This morning we had baptism, which was a sacrament of the gospel. We have the Lord's Supper too, a picture of the body and blood of Jesus. Little things, a little cup, a little piece of bread that speak to us of realities that are bigger than the whole world, right? And the land was like that. It was only a little piece of land, but it was a picture of heaven. It was a gift from God to the people, and it was to be kept, and it was never to be sold. If you turn back in Leviticus 25, for example, quickly you'll see the principle that was at stake, Leviticus 25 and verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity. Why? For the land, God says, is mine. It's God's land. For you are strangers and sojourners with me, and in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If, if, the, if the brother becomes poor, he can sell it. If he's really up against it, he can sell it for a period of time, but it will return to him again if he redeems it later for money or at the year of Jubilee. And you can read that in the rest of the chapter. But the principle is the land belongs to God, then it's entrusted to Israel as an inheritance. And that's, that principle grips Naboth. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what… Where am I? I've lost my place. Vexed because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him. For he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. Notice it repeats it. The issue is the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down on his bed and turned away. Now, when Jezebel comes to him and asks him, notice what Ahab says. When Ahab recounts the conversation. In verse 6, he says, Because I spoke to Naboth the Jezreelite and said to him, Give me your vineyard for money, or else, if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. He said, I will not give you my vineyard. Ahab's got no commonality in spirit with Naboth. He doesn't understand how, what makes this man tick. In, in his issue, it's Naboth's vineyard, and Ahab wants it as his own vineyard. And he's, he's, he's deaf perhaps willfully deaf to the God-honoring motivations that are firing and nurturing and encouraging Naboth's soul. And it's a self-centered covetousness uh, that is gripping the soul of Ahab. And Ahab can't cope 
Functionally, he's the richest man in all the world. He has everything, almost limitless power, vast wealth, but there's one thing he can't have, a little piece of land outside his palace walls, and because he can't say it's mine, he does what any self-respecting, almost omnipotent two-year-old would do. He throws a temper tantrum and a pity party, and he goes to his bed vexed and sullen. The progress of sin. And I want to say this to you. As we look at Ahab here, there's a lesson here. Covetousness, envy, jealousy, are never good signs in the soul when they're sinful um, manifestations of a rapacious, greedy heart. It's always a sign of a soul that has drifted away from God. And it should be a warning to you as you look at your heart and examine your heart before God each day in your devotions. You should ask yourself, Lord, where am I on the spectrum of contentment to covetousness? Do do I have that spirit that can say, Lord, I am willing to receive what you give, to lack what you withhold, to relinquish what you take, to be what you require, to bear what you send into my life? Am am I able to content myself with the providence of God, or or have have I slipped to the other end of that sliding scale from contentment to a rapacious covetousness? which one of the Puritans says covetousness is a denial of the providence of God. It's a heart that refuses to be content with what God has given. Al Mohler in his book, Words from the Fire, says Jesus warns about covetousness, saying that riches are deceitful because they steal the soul. How are you doing with covetousness? Is your mind set above where Christ is, or is your mind set on earth and the pleasures of passing things? Remember how Paul puts it in Colossians 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, you will appear also with Him in glory. And the more a person sets their mind above, the more they start thinking of their life and considering their life up there with Christ. Christ is my life. Not things down here, not the passing baubles and pleasures of this world, but the things of God. That's what defines me. It's one of the reasons why my hi-fi system literally sits in the dungeon of our uh, staff house. It no longer interests me. I still love music. I still enjoy listening to music, but it's just too much hassle setting it all up, and where would I put it? And it, it belongs to a different realm, a different time. And, and God in His mercy has lifted up my focus, my attention above where Christ is. And Paul says, therefore, put to death what is earthly in you, the things that pull your attention away from God, sexual immorality, passion, impurity, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. It's interesting that Paul connects covetousness with idolatry, things that control us, consume us, 
the way only God should, pulling us away from God, pulling us from Christ down to this earth. And on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming, the sure progress of sin. So, as you look at Ahab, it's appropriate to see here's a guy on a spiritual trajectory downwards, away from God, away from righteousness, toward wickedness. And it should be a warning to us if we start seeing covetousness, greediness, materialism blossoming in our heart. The second thing we see in this passage is the severe persecution of integrity. Ahab turned to Jezebel. He's sad. He's pouting on his bed. And Jezebel comes in, and she simply says, have you lost your mind? Like, you're the king. And it's amazing to see that, actually, because Ahab knew he was the king. And Ahab knew technically he could go and knock Ahab or Naboth off. He could do that. But he didn't do that. There was something, there was a check in his conscience, I think, that he wasn't inclined to go and just kill uh, Naboth. He was trying to deal with Naboth financially in a deal. But, but Jezebel, and this is always the case with Jezebel, Jezebel's always pushing. She's always the one pushing Ahab further than he wants to go. If you like, like, like this, Ahab, is, his sin is often passive. Ahab, or Jezebel's sin, is active. She's the one butchering the prophets of Baal, and she's the one arranging uh, Naboth's demise. And so it's, a not, it's also a powerful indicator, a re- reminder to us as men and women that our spouse, and men especially you, who you choose to marry matters a very great deal indeed. Your wife will either pull you towards God or pull you away from God, but she'll not be a neutral force in your life. It's why the book of Proverbs ends with an excellent wife. And I used to think, as I've said this before, that that chapter was there as kind of a, a Solomon giving a, a, a nod a little late in the day, but a nod nonetheless to the fairer sex, encouraging women to be an excellent wife. But actually, the chapter's not written for the woman. It's written for the son, an excellent wife who can find. Son, if you want to be the kind of man whose voice carries weight in the gates, who you choose to marry matters a very great deal indeed. Behind every good man, almost always, there's an even better woman. And if you marry poorly, the reverse will be the case. And rather than pushing you on toward God, your wife will be pulling you down away from God. And likewise, ladies, when it comes to you choosing your life mate, choose a man who can lead you in spiritual things and a man who will receive your encouragement as you, as you press on behind him, praying for him, encouraging him, spurring him on. Marry a kind of man who will respond to those encouragements and press on and lay hold of the upward call of God in Christ, Je- in Christ Jesus. But Jezebel here, she listens to, to Ahab and goes, listen, Ahab, you, you, why this pity party? Why? You're the king. I've, I've watched my dad deal with these kind of things. And when little people stand in your way, you don't pout. You crush them. You run over them. Simple. Leave it to me. And so Ahab goes down, has his happy meal in the kitchen, and 
Jezebel goes up to the study, takes Ahab's letterhead, and starts writing these letters to the elders of the city, giving out her marching orders. Proclaim a fast, she says, and set Naboth at the head of the people, and set two worthless men opposite him, and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. It's amazing how often a spoonful of religion helps the wickedness go down. Proclaim a fast. Make it look good. And get two witnesses. It's got to be legal. Ralph Davis says, it may be injustice, but it's religious injustice. It may be um, injustice, but it will be legal injustice. The severe persecution of the righteous. And again, it's one of those things that we see this pattern in Scripture of God's people are often crushed underfoot by the wicked. It's there again and again and again in Scripture, and we should see it and remember it and not despair when it happens to us. Which brings me to the next point, which is the strange timing of God. All this injustice is done, and Naboth's broken, mangled body lies dead under a heap of stones. And Jezebel sends the message, he's dead. Take your vineyard and enjoy your vegetables. Then in verse 17, we have the strange timing of God. Then, then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite. Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone to take possession. And you shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, Have you killed and also taken possession? You shall say to him, Thus says the Lord, In the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Then the word of the Lord came to light the Tishbite. And we're left saying to ourselves, The strange timing of the Lord. Why didn't God send Elijah earlier? Here's this wicked act of injustice perpetrated by this wicked woman who desperately needs to be killed. And she's doing all this behind the scenes, this religious injustice. And God seems to stand there and say nothing and do nothing while something desperately needs to be said and done. And when God finally gets going, it's too late, and Naboth is dead, and the deed has been done. Why does God do that? And the simple answer is, I'm not sure I can explain it. It's God's inscrutable providence, Calvin would say. But it's a pattern in Scripture that God's people suffer. They are crushed in the teeth of wicked and ungodly, unprincipled rulers. And it's it's, it's like um, Teresa of Avila, who was a, a nun in the Catholic Church during the time of Luther's 
Reformation in Wittenberg, and, and she was in Italy, I think, and um, in those regions, but she had a famously close relationship with God, they say, and there was one time she's riding a donkey, and the donkey bucked, and she fell off the donkey, and as she was picking herself up from the ground, dusting herself off, she says, Lord, if this is how you treat your friends, tis no wonder you have so few. Um, and she gets on the donkey and drives off, and there's a sense you wonder, why does God allow His people to suffer so much? And and then we get to the New Testament, and we see this pattern rise to a climax, because it's not just Naboth who is accused unjustly and butchered by wicked and unprincipled men, but God allows His own Son to be treated the same way. All these former acts of injustice point forward, do they not, to the cross as God's own Son receives, as it were, no better treatment Matthew 26, we're told the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they find none, though many false witnesses came forward. And at last, just like in Naboth's case, two came forward to bring the decisive testimony that sealed the Son of God's fate. And you remember how Peter weaves all this together when he's talking to slaves in the church at Rome, and these slaves who are being beaten by their masters. And he says to them, what credit is it if when you're beaten for your fault, you take it patiently? If your master's beating you and you're a wicked slave and you take that patiently, what credit is that to you? But if you do good and suffer and you take that patiently, this is commendable before God, for to this you were called." because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow His steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When He suffered, He did not threaten, but committed Himself to Him who judges righteously, who Himself bore our sins in His own body on the tree. And this theme climaxing in Christ and His great example that as we face earthly injustice, as we at times are crushed beneath the, um, the teeth of an unjust, cruel, tyrannical regime, the answer is not to be angry or bitter or resentful, but the, the answer is to turn with Christ and follow His example and to commit ourselves to God in the sure and certain hope that He will judge righteously. Maybe not on our time, but it will happen eventually. Then last we see the certain judgment of evil. As we said, Elijah comes to uh, Samaria, and he meets Ahab, and there's a poetic justice here, isn't there? Thus says the Lord, in the place where dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. Here's the man who has sold himself to do evil before the Lord, verse 20. And God says, Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male, bond, or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, 
and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me, and because you have made Israel to sin. And of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone who belongs to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat. Anyone who, of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heavens shall eat. And the judgment comes, and it is certain. God may, God may take his time, but he will not allow evil to go unchallenged forever. And we need to live in that confidence. We see so much corruption in Washington, so much that is, is wrong in this world, and that should not lead us to doubt the final judgment of God. Ralph Davis says, how quietly the Bible makes the most massive assumptions. Surely you see it. No one is exempt from the scrutiny and judgment of God's Word. In Israel, like it or not, the prophet as bearer of Yahweh's Word stands above and over the king and the queen. No one, whatever his status, whatever her success, can wiggle squirm or run beyond the boundaries of God's jurisdiction. Jurisdiction. And the Bible is full of counsel for you and me. As you face, perhaps in your workplace, uh, wicked people, the alphabet mafia, out to get you pull you down, and people attacking you, um, crushing you, working behind the scenes. And, and God has given us swathes of the Psalms to, to give you something to hold on to in those moments when you become the Naboth and you're the one being crushed. Like Psalm 37, do not fret because of evildoers. Be not envious toward wrongdoers. Why? For they will wither quickly like the herb and fade like the green grass. What do you do instead? Trust in the Lord. And dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord, and He will do it. He will do what? He'll bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. Rest in the Lord. Wait patiently for Him. Do not fret because of Him who prospers in the way, because of the man who carries out wicked schemes. Cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Why? For evildoers will be cut off. If you fret, if you become angry and bitter, you'll just become like Ahab, an evildoer, and evildoers will be cut off. So cease from anger. Forsake wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil doing. Yet a little while, and the wicked man will be no more. You will look carefully for his place. He will not be there. But the humble will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant prosperity. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes at him with his teeth. But the Lord laughs at him. Why? For he sees that his day is coming, the psalmist says. The wicked has drawn the sword and bent their bow. 
to cast down the afflicted and the needy, to slay those who are upright in their conduct. But, the psalmist says, their sword, the wicked sword, shall enter their own heart, and their bow shall be broken. Better is the little of the righteous than the abundance of many wicked. Why? For the arms of the wicked will be broken, but the Lord sustains the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their inheritance is forever. They will not be ashamed in the time of evil. In the days of famine, they'll have an abundance, but the wicked will perish. And the enemies of the Lord will be like the glories of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. Even when he's being attacked, persecuted, God is the one, like a father watching over the steps of his son, learning to walk. The steps of a man are established by the Lord, and he delights in his way. When he falls, he'll not be hurled headlong, because the Lord is the one who holds his hand. I've been young, now I'm old, but I've never seen the righteous forsaken or his descendants begging bread. All day long he is gracious and lends, and his descendants are a blessing. And so, therefore, the psalmist says, depart from evil and do good, so you will abide forever. For the Lord loves justice and does not forsake His godly ones. They're preserved forever. But the wicked and their descendants will be cut off. And the psalmist goes on like that. And it's a reminder to us, the Psalm, Psalm 37 ends, he says, I have seen a wicked, luxuriant man spreading himself like a luxuriant tree in its native soil. Then he passed away, and lo, he was no more. But mark the blameless man, and behold the upright, for the man of peace will have a posterity. And that whole psalm and psalms like that are designed by God to teach you that the salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their strength in time of trouble. He'll be your strength in time of trouble. The Lord will help you. The Lord will deliver you. He will deliver you from the wicked and will save you because you take refuge in Him. And like Naboth, that deliverance came through death. God took him as it were, like, like Stephen dying in Acts 7 as the, the Jews stoned him, and he sees Christ, remember, standing at the right hand of the majesty on high, almost in indignation. Look what they're doing to my servant, standing, ready to receive Stephen up into heaven. And there's so much of that teaching in the Bible to Teach us not to be surprised when it befalls us, and not to lose heart, and not to lose our hold in God, because God will not lose His hold of us. One very last thing to see quickly before we end this sermon. We've seen the sure progress of sin in Ahab's heart. We've seen the severe persecution of integrity in Naboth, the strange timing of God in coming after he dies, the certain judgment of God upon evil. And then we see at the very end of the passage the confounding, stupendous mercy of Jehovah. Look at the very end of the chapter. It's incredible. And notice 
in verse 25, we've already been told this, but as we kind of come up to God's mercy toward Ahab, um, the, the writer, whoever it was, stresses the wickedness of this man. There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols, as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. That's the, the, the kind of the press out. Don't forget who this man was. And when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejected. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Look at that guy. He's not really sorry for his sins. He hasn't really repented. No. Have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring the disaster upon his house. Now, I can't deny, I don't believe this was honest, wholehearted repentance. And I don't believe God fully removed the judgment from Ahab. Ahab and Jezebel did die. This word of judgment was fulfilled against him. And yet we see here a picture of the heart of God. It shows you that, that, that God's favorite work is not destroying wicked men. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And the moment Ahab's heart responds, even though it's not a wholehearted response, he, he turns a little bit, he, he feels sorrowful and sad and dejected. He hasn't returned Naboth's vineyard to the family of Naboth. None of that, but there's, there's regret, there's sorrow, there's, there's outward um, demonstration of a heart that is troubled by what he has done. The moment he does that, God responds. Why is that in the Bible? I'll tell you why it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible for you and for me. If God will respond to Ahab, Ahab takes a step toward God. It's a step. He doesn't run toward him. He doesn't turn to God from idols. He, takes, he does take a step. The God of heaven isn't saying, well, that's not enough. More. Come on, no. Ahab takes a step toward God, and God, as it were, takes a step toward Ahab and lightens the judgment. And that was designed to call more sorrow, more repentance from Ahab, which never fully comes. But it's a picture to you, Christian, when the devil says to you, God will not forgive you after all you've done. Really? How many times have you gone back to that sin? I'm counting. You've lost count, but I know exactly, and God knows exactly how many times you've gone back to that sin. Don't you think going to God and saying sorrow now will make any difference whatsoever? When the devil says that to you, take him to this passage. Here's Ahab. After all he did, he turns and there's a little step toward God. And the great God of heaven turns and takes a step of mercy toward Ahab. Almost saying, come on, son. Come further. Deeper in. Further in. Come to me. I'll not cast you out. And this is in the Scriptures to encourage you and me. If God will 
show such mercy to Ahab. This blackguard. Do you think he'll not show such mercy to you? This is the father of Jesus who stands at the door of the church of Laodicea. They locked the door in his very face. And Jesus is knocking on the door. If any man hears, open the door, and I'll come in and sup with him. He's just like his father, Jesus is. His heart is big and warm, and his favorite, favorite act is to receive sinners from their sins. And if you turn to him, he's waiting. The Psalm 86, he's, the Lord is good, and he's ready to forgive, like a sprinter in the Olympic final, ready. Even though here he makes like a false start, he's so ready to go, he thinks the gun's about to go, and he starts, as it were, down the track, the sprinter does, and there's a false start, and you go back again. And there's echoes of that in the heart of God. He's so yearning for people to turn to him. The moment they even seem to do, God turns toward them. This is the heart of God. And one of the reasons I think God allowed Naboth to die was to show you and me this beautiful picture of the Father's heart and his willingness to show mercy to Ahab, even when he just began to begin to repent. It wasn't ignored by God, and it wasn't rejected by God, and neither will you be. Turn to me, God says. Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its truth and its power, and there are hard passages to preach. And this is one of them, O oh Lord God, difficult to get to the heart of, but as we struggle and wrestle with it, we find ourselves coming face to face with the heart of God, and isn't it wonderful? And we pray, O oh Lord, that you will use this picture of your astounding, confounding, surprising mercy to draw us all away from our sins, not to despair. If there was mercy for Ahab and mercy for Paul, the chief of sinners, then there'll be mercy for any. No matter what we've done, no matter who we are, if we turn back to God, there's always a way back to the Father's heart through Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.